Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. How's everybody doing this morning? Amen. Well, you don't sound very excited. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, praise God. You know, it's okay to have fun in church and be relaxed and enjoy yourself, right? Amen. Praise God. Tell you what, if I had a nickel for every time I saw a depressed-looking Christian, praise God. No, we, we, have, a, we have something to be joyful about, don't we? We have something to rejoice in, and that's the goodness of God. Amen. Praise God. Well, I want you to do something. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, today you're going to get something you never got from the Word of God. Amen. You're going to get something today you've never gotten from the Word of God. Why is that? Because I'm such a good orator? No, because the Holy Spirit is speaking. He's speaking to hearts and minds. And as we open the Word, we're going to be exposed to the, the goodness of God. We're going to be exposed to Jesus. We're going to be exposed to the Word. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And as He speaks to us, we see things and we hear things we never saw or heard before. It's called revelation. And it's the key to living a life in God, is to walk in revelation knowledge. Amen? Hallelujah. So I, I'm trusting the Lord this morning that you and I are going to see and hear things we didn't see and hear before. We're going to know things we've never learned before. Amen? I believe God's gonna, going to grow you and I this morning in spiritual things. We're going to grow in the things of God, and we're going to be changed. Amen? Now, before I get into my message, I want to share a quick testimony that happened. This, uh, this last Sunday, we had a time of just... Just a wonderful time in the presence of the Lord last Sunday. I couldn't get to my notes for the whole time. I, try, I kept trying to go back to my notes, and I couldn't get to them. But uh, one thing that the Lord strongly impressed upon me as we were ending worship was that when I stood up to, to teach and to preach, that I was supposed to take a moment and have everybody turn their attention on Jesus. Do you remember when that happened? We took a few moments, and we just... Stopped everything else in the service, and we said, we're just going to become aware of the presence of God. And I found out later, I think it was the next day, I was sent a text from someone in the church here, and uh, they told me of some pain that they were having in their body, in their chest, uh, during, the, during the praise and worship time. And during this time in between praise and worship, before we started to... Um, share the word, when we started to turn our attention towards Jesus, they said in their text, and I'm pretty sure I'm getting this right, but uh, they said that during that time, while their eyes were closed and they were turning their attention on Jesus, they became aware that somebody was standing in front of them. This was with their eyes closed. And they felt a hand reach out and touch their chest, and they were healed, and the pain was gone. Nobody prayed for them. Nobody didn't have a special healing line. Nothing unusual seemed to be going on. We were just turning our attention on Jesus. And guess what happened? Jesus showed up. The power of God showed up and healed somebody. Without anybody being aware of it, without any fanfare, without any hoopla, miracles happen. Don't you believe that's the way it's supposed to be? Yes, 
that God has the ability to move in his people, among his people, the way he sees fit? I'm telling you what, I'd rather, I'd rather be in that kind of church. I'd rather be in that kind of environment. Amen. Than to just, than to just come and, and hear a bunch of, you know, information about God. No, I'd rather have an encounter with him, wouldn't you? Amen. Praise God. So I just wanted to share that testimony uh, just so that you could be encouraged. God's doing things even when you don't realize it. Amen. He's speaking to people. He's revealing himself. He's changing hearts. He's touching lives. He's healing. He's delivering. Even when we don't see it, even when we're not aware of it tangibly, God's working. Amen. Aren't you glad he's working in your life this morning? Hallelujah. Well, we're going to get into the word this morning. Let's make our confession of faith, and then I'm going to jump right in. I've got a lot to talk to you about this morning. Let's make our confession of faith together. You see it up there on the screen. Let's declare it with faith today. Thank you, Father, that today the eyes of my heart see you, the ears of my heart hear you. My heart and mind perceive and understand your word and your will. Today I am growing in the things of God. Say that one more time. Today I am growing in the things of God. So, Father, we thank you today for the entrance of your word, which the Bible said brings light. We thank you that your word brings clarity, not confusion, that your word brings answers to questions, that your word illuminates, and it fascinates us this morning, Lord. We thank you that as we come to your word, we will see something we've never seen before. We will hear things we've never heard before. We take authority this morning over the enemy who would seek to, de to deceive and who would seek to capture our attention so that we miss things. This morning, Lord, we take authority over the enemy and we say that every eye will see you and every ear will hear you. We give you our full attention today, Lord, and we ask you to speak to us through your word. In Jesus' mighty name, and let everybody say, amen. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians chapter 6, I ask that you would agree with me today for utterance. And I would encourage you to plan on taking some good notes today. I'm going to throw some Greek words at you. I'm going to throw a bunch at you today. So I encourage you to dive in. Let's go deep together. My father would say this all the time. He says, there's two ways to study the Bible. He said, you can study the Bible like a water skier, or you can study the Bible like a deep sea diver. You know, they're both encountering the same ocean, but they're seeing it from two completely different perspectives. Both of them have merit. Sometimes it's fun to water ski, just glide across the top. And then sometimes it's fun to scuba dive. You see things that you don't get to see when you scuba dive, right? So uh, I'm asking you to agree with me for utterance today. Let's take some good notes and let's press in, okay? I've got a lot of things to say. What we're going to talk about today, in truth, probably could be stretched out over four, five, six different sessions, but in, uh, in, in, for the sake of brevity, I'm going to uh, just make some comments on Ephesians 6 and, and trust that the Lord will speak everything that you need to hear uh, directly to you. So Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 10 and we're going to go down through verse 18. Before we read that, let me say this, in our authority series that we just finished up, which if you, if you didn't get the chance to hear that, you can check out our podcast on highcountrychristian.com and you can get uh, caught up on our authority series. It was a really good time. 
But during that authority series, this passage of Ephesians chapter 6 just came up in my heart, and I, I haven't been able to get away from it. I haven't been able to pry myself away from Ephesians 6. And so we're going to spend the rest of the time today and cover it a bit more thoroughly. So let's begin reading verse 10 of Ephesians 6. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful unto this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, the book of Ephesians was written during Paul's imprisonment in the city of Rome. This is, uh, theologians believe it to be, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 62 AD was when it was written. And if you don't know the story of Paul and about where, where, what happened in his life, he was sent to, uh, he was captured in Jerusalem towards the end of his uh, traveling ministry, and he was captured by the Sanhedrin and sent off to Rome as a prisoner. And he had a lot of adventures from the time he left uh, Caesarea Philippi and traveled across the Mediterranean Sea over to Rome. But ultimately, Despite all of his adventures, he finally did get to Rome, and he was a prisoner of the Roman Empire at that time. What happened when he got to Rome, uh, though he was a prisoner of the state, he was not viewed as a common th- uh, criminal, so he wasn't viewed as a threat when he got to Rome. So rather than put him in jail, he lived in a very nice house. Uh, matter of fact, all of the money that he got to purchase this home where, or to rent this home but that he lived in was given to him uh, off of the island. Do you remember when they got shipwrecked and he got caught in the island in Malta and he shook the snake off of him into the fire? Uh, history tells us that the king of that island was so thankful because he healed the king and got the whole family saved. The whole island came to Jesus because Paul uh, got bit by a snake. Isn't that cool? Um, and so... The history tells us that that king loaded him up with so much wealth that by the time he got to Rome, he was sailing in an Alexandrian ship, and he was able, which was the nicest ship, it was like driving a Mercedes-Benz, and he arrived as a prisoner with truckloads of cash and gold, and he was able to purchase, uh, or rent, excuse me, this home that he lived in where he had church. This place was big enough that he was inviting Many, many people into his home, some theologians say up to 200 people, that would come to Paul's house to have church. So even though he was a prisoner, he was a special kind of prisoner. God had plugged him in 
in Rome so that he would have an enormous impact, which was the center of the universe as far as things were concerned in the ancient day. Rome was where it was at. So he wasn't a common prisoner, he wasn't a common criminal, but uh, he, he lived in this home and he was enchained 100% of the time to a Roman guard. Why am I mentioning this? Because what we just read about the armor of God, I totally believe Paul got by revelation of the Holy Spirit as he looked at the guard he was chained to. Here he is writing in his apartment, in his beautiful house, He's writing this letter to Ephesus, and he gets to the very end of the book, and he turns, I believe, he turns and looks at this Roman centurion that he is chained to, and as he looks at him, God begins to speak to him about how God himself has outfitted us as believers. Isn't that cool? So he says in verse 10, finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, I've commented on what it means to be strong in the Lord. I'm not going to talk about that this morning. What I do want you to see is the word finally. In the Greek, what that means, if I can give you my interpretation of that word finally from the Greek language, it means, friends, if you didn't get anything I said up to this point, get this. There's such a pronunciation of finality in this word, and he is, he is putting so much emphasis on what he's about to say by this word, finally, in the Greek. Friends, if you didn't get anything I said in the first five chapters, get this. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, he, what he does is he goes on to talk to us about seven different pieces of armor. Now, I've got a graphic to show you, and we'll refer to this as we go along here. And I'm going to do my best to be fast. There's so many things. I mean, I, I could take six hours and teach this to you, but I'm going to try to do it in 30 minutes. There are seven pieces given to every single Roman soldier when they signed up to be a soldier in Rome. There's the helmet. There's the breastplate. There's the shield, there's the belt, which has those gold tassel things hanging from it, there's the sword, there's the spear, and there's the shoes. This was standard outfit, standard outfit for a citizen, or excuse me, a soldier, a centurion in the Roman army. Now these guys were trained in battle, they were the fiercest army known to mankind. Nobody could touch the Romans. And they were outfitted. These guys were total killing machines. I mean, look at this dude. He doesn't look very happy. He looks outfitted for war. I thought this was interesting when I found this image. His shins are all dirty in the image. He must, he must have just come from battle. But there are seven different pieces of armor. The helmet, the breastplate, the belt, the shoes, the sword, the shield, and the spear. What's amazing is that Paul only mentions six of them. He doesn't mention the spear, or does he? He doesn't call it out, but he does mention it. We'll see that as we get further into the chapter. One thing that I'll say before we dive into each individual piece, notice what's not present here. The helmet is salvation, the Bible says. The breastplate is righteousness. The belt is truth. The shoes are peace. 
The sword is the word. The shield is faith. The spear, if you look at verse 18, is prayer. We're going to get into that in a minute. But notice what's not present here. There's all these glorious attributes of God presented in this armor, and I notice two things blatantly missing. Love and grace. Did you ever notice that they're not included? Why would God not include love and grace in all of this? It's because love and grace are not weapons. Love is the law of God's kingdom. Love is what governs our relationships with each other. This guy is outfitted for combat. He is going to wage war against the kingdom of darkness. He's not walking in love towards the devil, and neither should you, right? You're supposed to walk in love with your neighbor, and you're supposed to kick the devil's butt, not the other way around. So I noticed love was absent from this verse or from this passage. I also noticed that grace was absent from this passage. Why is that? Because grace is not a weapon either. Grace is the empowerment from God for you to use all these weapons. Grace is what fuels you to use the sword of the Spirit. Grace is what fuels you to walk in, the, in faith, to hold up the shield of faith. Grace is what fuels you to stand in the peace of God. So love and grace are absent, but they're not really absent. They're absent by name because they're not weapons. Out of these seven weapons that Paul, or out of these seven armor pieces that Paul shows us, only two of them are offensive. The spear and the sword are the only two that are offensive. All the other ones are there to protect. Amen. God always protects his children. He always protects his children. You never have to be afraid that you're not protected. Amen? He always protects his people. One more thing, and then we'll get into each of the weapons. Notice that there's nothing protecting the backside of this guy. It's because God never intends for you to retreat in life. Come on. He never intends for you to retreat. There is no protection on your backside because you're always supposed to be moving forward. Amen? Glory to God. Now, let's look at verse 11, and we'll jump into these. I hope you're doing okay so far. Just get the pen and the paper ready. I'm telling you, you're going to want to write this stuff down. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Everybody say whole. It does no good for this guy to go into battle partially dressed. Right? Don't show up to the battlefield and be like, oh, shoot, forgot my sword. Dang it, I left my shield in the car. <laughs> put on the whole armor of God. What's that? What do I mean? Be bought in, man. Be all in. If you're going to go with God, get all in. Amen? Don't be a partial Christian. Don't just be a Christian on Sunday. Put on the whole armor of God. Go all in. Let's read. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. <laughs> what are the wiles of the devil? 
I want to take just a moment to pick this piece apart in the Greek. Can we do that? What are the wiles of the devil that you're supposed to stand against? There's two words that we need to look at. The wiles of the devil. The first word is wiles in the Greek. It's the word methodia. 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 Do you hear, do you hear an English word in that? Method, right? Methodia. It's a singular word in the Greek. And I don't want to take too much time to take... It's a compounded word, but I'm not going to take time to explain it. Just trust me when I say it's a singular word. In, in the New King James, somehow it got translated as wiles, plural. But it's really only a singular word. The devil really only has one method. Right? He really only has one method. We tend to think that the devil is this gloriously brilliant individual who is perpetually waging war on the human race from some strong position. But we just talked for four weeks on authority and we thoroughly covered the fact that the devil's a loser. He's absolutely been utterly defeated. He has no say in your life unless you give it to him. Right? So he's defeated, man. So he doesn't have, he's very uncreative. This is one of the things you got to know about the devil. God is a creator. The devil is a manipulator. He takes what's already been created and twists it. But he's very non-creative. He's not constantly coming up with new ways to battle you. He's got one method. He's got one methodia. Well, what is his one method? Well, the key to answering that is found in the word devil. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the method, the methodia of the devil. Now, I want you to understand something. The word devil here is more of a job description than it is a name. The devil, we, we call him the devil. And his name, his given name in scripture is Lucifer or Satan. But the word devil is, is the word diablos in the Greek. Diablos. And it's more of a job description than it is a name. Do you know what it means? It means accu accusation or accuser. That's what the word diablos means. Accuser or accusation. It's, from, it's a compound of two Greek words, dia and balo, which means to repeatedly hurl or throw, to break through something by hurling at it. So the compounded word here paints a very specific picture. You've got to understand this if you're going to appreciate these seven pieces of armor. The devil only has one method. What's his method? To accuse you. To be the accuser of the brethren. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, he is the accuser of the brethren. And when it says he's the accuser, this is the picture that the word paints. He's a person who is hurling accusations over and over and over and over and over and over until they penetrate the defenses of the person they're attacking. So the devil only has one angle on you. He's only going to hurl accusations at you over and over and over and over again until he breaks through. What does that look like? I'll tell you exactly what it looks like. Your thoughts. 
It's your thoughts. It's when he comes to you and sits and perches up on your little shoulder and says, you know, you really don't deserve that promotion. Your marriage isn't going as strong as you think it's going to. Your kids are in rebellion. Your wife doesn't love you. Your husband doesn't love you. You're really not very smart. I don't think you're going to make it. I don't think you're going to amount to much. You're really not qualified for the position that they put you in. I don't know how you got that position. Probably won't last very long. I don't understand why you're so ugly. He, I mean, he will sit there and accuse, 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 and he's just going to keep doing it and keep doing it until you put your foot down and say, stop it. That's how the devil, this is his only method. He's not as big and intimidating as he wants you to believe he is. He's got one course of action, and that is to hurl accusations at you until something in the defenses breaks down. Now, the good news is that God has equipped you for this kind of warfare. He has equipped you with everything that you need in these seven pieces of armor. Now, let's look at them. Verse 14, if you would, please. Stand, therefore... Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So verse 14 covers two of these pieces of armor. Gosh, I'm so excited about this. He says, stand therefore having girded. Girded is not a word that we use a whole lot. Having girded yourself with truth. We sometimes call it a belt. I tend to think more of a girdle. Right? I mean, that's kind of the word that was used here. It's, it's in a very, very, very important piece. Why, why did Paul mention the belt, the girdle, the truth first? Why did he mention this piece of armor first? It's because this belt was probably the most important single article on the soldier's body. Why? It's because this belt, this girdle, this piece, this some call it a loin girdle or a loincloth, this piece connected all the other pieces or most of the other pieces of armor to it. The belt was so significant because it held the sword in place. I've heard, I read something that one, one person suggested that even the shoes that certain straps of leather connected to the belt... The, the decoration that the soldier wore connected to it. The breastplate of righteousness connected to the belt. Without the belt, all the rest of the armor gets loose and falls off. So Paul mentions this first because it's probably the most singularly important piece on the soldier. And he goes on to tell us that that belt represents truth. Truth. Truth is essential. Essential. Amen. There is and has always been a systematic attack on truth in the world. Now we see it more now than we have ever seen it in our lifetime, but that doesn't mean that it started in our lifetime. There has always been and there always will be a systematic demonic attack against truth. 
You see it in culture. You see it on college campuses. You see it when you have conversations with people. Everybody uses this phrase, and every time they do it, I want to grind my teeth, your truth. Well, brother, you got to just speak your truth. Who gives two flippity flops about your truth? I care about the truth. What does the truth say? And does my opinion match up with the truth? And if it doesn't, then I probably need to rethink my opinion. There is a standard set forth by the word of God. There is a standard in this world called the truth, and it is Jesus himself. John 14, 6 is so incredibly clear. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the standard of truth that everything has to measure up against. And he is critical. He is essential. He is what holds everything else together in your life. Amen. The book of John is interesting. The book of John talks more about truth than any of the other gospels. Matter of fact, than any of them combined. The word truth appears more in the book of John than anywhere else. In the Gospels. We're not going to go there for the sake of time, but write these verses down. John 8, 44. Jesus talks about the devil being the father of lies. He says there's no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks of his own resource, and his own resource is nothing but lies. That you need to understand, because remember, what is he? The accuser of the brethren. How does he attack you? What's his methodia? It's to just sit there and accuse. Well, you've got to understand that when he's accusing, he's, he's only got lies. He doesn't have truth to work with. The fiery darts it talks about, they're just lies. There's zero truth in him because he doesn't have that as a resource to work with. Right? John 14, 6, I just quoted it to you. John 18, this is amazing. Verse 36 and 37, Jesus is standing in front of Pontius Pilate. And he says, anybody that believes my words believes the truth. And Pontius Pilate looks at him and says, what is truth? And before Jesus can answer him, Pontius walks away. He walked away from the truth before he could have a chance. It's one of the saddest moments in scripture. He looks at Jesus, says, what is truth? And walks away. And here the truth was standing right in front of him. Truth is of utter importance. It holds everything together. Next he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. If you put the graphic back up on the screen, please. Look at that breastplate. It's got shoulder pads. It's made of, of multiple sheets of metal that are constructed in such a way that it kind of looks like scales on a reptile. They overlap, so there's zero opportunity for penetration of the breastplate of righteousness. Why is this so important? This is the piece that is meant to protect all of your vital organs. This is the piece that's meant to, to protect all of your vital organs. I mean, if you know, if you go into battle and you lose a finger, you'll probably survive, right? Somebody cuts a hand off, you're probably going to make it. Somebody stabs you through the heart, you're not going to make it, right? So this piece, this breastplate is meant to protect all of our vital organs. One thing stands out to me more than anything else. He calls it the breastplate of righteousness. 
Now, righteousness is a description of our right standing with God. It's about our relationship with God. It's the fact that nothing separates me from God because I've been made righteous. My sin is no longer a barrier between me and my Father because I've been made righteous. Now, what's interesting to me is that in the Old Covenant, we're taught... In the book of Proverbs, you can go look at Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 20. It says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. You remember that? In the old covenant, we're taught that we have the responsibility of guarding our heart. In the new covenant, it's the righteousness of God that protects your heart. It's the fact that you've been made righteous and that you are in right standing with your Father that acts as a protective barrier over all your vital organs used to be that you and I had the responsibility of setting up a wall around our hearts. No, God set that up for you now. It's called his righteousness. He made you righteous. Now let's keep going. Time is absolutely flying by. Verse 15. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, I, I looked at some of these. I didn't bring a, uh, an image to show you, but I'll do my best to describe what these shoes look like. As I said, there's some difference of opinion. Some, some people just describe the shoes as like sandals, and then some show them as being um, like thongs that had a lot of leather that would actually wrap up around the, uh, the shin and the calf muscle. One thing that everybody agrees on is that these shoes were the most intense kind of cleats ever. You can, you can look and see in recreations of these shoes. On the underside, they, they took... Um, let me make sure I read this properly from my notes. They took metal fragments on the bottom of the shoes and you know, impacted them into the leather. They took metal fragments like spikes, which acted as cleats, and held the soldier in place when they were assaulted. One of the things about this chapter, in other words that, uses, that Paul uses in earlier parts of the chapter, we don't have time to get, out, to get to them, but one of the things that you see is he is describing a forward-moving offensive posture. You're never supposed to retreat from the enemy. And these shoes are one of the things that help you stand your ground when you're being assaulted. They have these pieces of metal in them, and I mean, they're pretty deep things. You see like football cleats, well, imagine that, but with spikes of metal, okay? And imagine that you're being attacked, you're, you're, you're holding your ground against the enemy. It's these cleats that have driven you into a place of... of uh, Stability. There's two key points that we take from this scripture. Number one, it's the peace of God that keeps you stable and grounded no matter what situation you're in. The scripture teaches us that it's the peace of God that passes our understanding. How is it that you're able to stand your ground when all hell is breaking loose in your life? when you're under opposition, when you're being opposed and you're being attacked from every side, how do you stand your ground? The peace of God. The peace of God. The, the wholeness, the nothing missing, nothing broken reality of your relationship with God is what holds you firm and causes you not to slip and stumble and be defeated. 
That's number one. Number two, that same peace that holds you stable when you're under attack goes with you everywhere you go. How many people go into a battle, they get attacked, and then once they're done get attacked, they take their shoes off and leave them on the battlefield? No. No, you wore those shoes into battle. Oh, yeah, check that out. See these things? You wore these shoes into battle. They kept you solid. And now, when it's time to make further offensive movements, those same shoes are going with you. The things that took you into battle and kept you stable in battle are going to go with you into the next battle. The peace of God, he said he'd never leave us and he would never forsake us. His peace, his perfection, his goodness, his protection over our life is going with us wherever we go. His goodness goes with us. Amen. You getting something out of this this morning? Let's keep moving. Verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now there is so much to say about the shield of faith. I don't have time to get to all of it today. Maybe we can talk about it in future lessons or at another time. But let me give you a few things. If you notice in the image, there are two different Greek words for the word shield. There were two different primary kinds of shields that they would use. One of them was a round shield, right? You've all seen that if you watch like war movies and stuff. A round shield. Then the second word in the Greek is a shield like what we have in the image here, which is a very broad and very tall curved shield, different from a round shield. This Greek word for shield here, the root of it is the root word for a door in the Greek. Imagine if you went to battle with a door. You have something, you have something that completely covers you. And you can literally hide behind the whole thing, right? You see how big this guy's shield is? Here's what I found out. This is amazing to me. When a, when a soldier went out to become a part of the Roman army... They got fitted for their shield. No two shields were exactly the same. Isn't that amazing? You see, sometimes we have this idea in our minds. Oh, I wish I had as much faith as so-and-so. I wish I had as much faith as this person or that person. No, you have exactly the amount of faith that you need for your life. You were fitted with it when you signed up. Jesus took your measurements the moment you got saved and said, here's all the faith this one's ever going to need. The question is not whether or not do you have enough faith. The question is, have you laid your shield down somewhere else or are you holding it up? You see, the thing about the shield, more than anything else, more than any of the other armor pieces, is that it was the first thing that the enemy encountered. When somebody was trying to come after this dude, what's the first thing they're going to they're gonna see? His shield. Why do I say that? It's because when the enemy comes after you, you need to make sure that he meets your faith first. You need to make sure that when the devil is coming out to wage war against you, that he encounters your faith. I love what Smith Wigglesworth used to say. He would say, when the devil knocks on your door, send faith to answer it. Amen. When the devil
devil knocks on your door, send your faith out front to answer it. Most of the time, the reality is that when people, when the enemy wages war on people, he's met with their fear instead of their faith. He sits there and hurls accusations, and the first thing they do is agree with the accusation. Oh, you're going to die. Oh, I think I'm going to die. The symptom comes. Oh, you're sick in your body. I think I'm sick in my body. They agree with the accusation instead of sending their faith out to fight the battle. Glory to God. Now, there's, again, there's a gazillion things we could say about that, but we won't for the sake of time. Just know that your faith shield is customized just for you. You've got, you've already got in you everything you'll ever need to succeed in the kingdom of God. It's already been put on the inside of you. Let's keep going. Verse 17. We've got about five or six minutes left. Verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now what's amazing is the helmet here was the most, the most visible piece of armor that the soldier possessed. And it was oftentimes, it often denoted the rank and file of officers and normal soldiers. It was one of the things that was the most notable about what he was wearing. All this other stuff pretty well stayed the same, but if you were a general or if you were an officer, if you had some sort of rank, your helmet changed. There was different ornate pieces that were added or taken away or the shape of it would change. The point is, Paul says that this is a representation of our salvation. The fact that you're saved ought to be the first thing that people notice about you. When it comes time to make a judgment call on who you are, they ought to not wonder whether or not you're saved. Can I just be real frank and honest for just a second? We got too many people in the church that if somebody asked them whether or not they were saved, they, people wouldn't even know how to answer. We're not supposed to look like the world. Amen. You're not supposed to look like the opposing army. Some, something about your life should be different. When people meet you, they ought to go, why is this person so different? Why, why does their headdress look so different than mine? Why does their helmet look so different from mine? What have they got that I ain't got? You see, this speaks of our witness. Number one, the helmet of salvation. Number two, it speaks of the fact that the fact that we're saved guards our mind. Right? The fact that you're a Christian protects your, your mind, your thinking, your thoughts. Then he says, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Boy, we could camp here for a couple days, couldn't we? <laughs> One point I'll make. You saw in the picture that this sword is not a big, brave heart, broad sword. Those are called claymores, by the way. You ever seen a claymore? You ever see that movie Braveheart? I mean, it would take you four or five hands just to grip the entirety of the handle. The thing's like six feet long. That's a, that's a broad sword. This is not that kind of sword. 
That sword is made for swinging and hacking down your enemies. That's not the kind of sword Paul was describing. The kind of sword that he was describing is a sword that was shorter, more like a large dagger, was extremely sharp, and was used, there it is, was extremely sharp on both sides, and was used to stab. This is a piece of armor, this is a weapon that's made for close combat. You see, we're going to see in just a second how prayer is the spear, and that spear is what goes out ahead of you and vanquishes the enemy before he has a chance to get to you. But should he have a chance to get to you, you've got something to use in close combat to slice and dice that fool, right? You need to take the word of God and use it as a sharp sword in your life. When the enemy comes out to to tempt you, when the enemy comes out to defeat you, when the enemy starts to hurl accusations at you, what do you do? You take out the word and start to stab him with it. Cut him up with it. Don't just sit there and take the accusation. You'll never win that way. Amen. The Word of God, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word is your weapon against the enemy. So stab him, man. Cut him up. Amen. Trust me, he'll leave you alone. The reason that the, the, reason that the enemy persists in people's lives is because they don't fight him with the Word. That's serious, man. Finally, verse 18, this was the seventh one, the seventh piece of armor that I said, Paul doesn't call it out like he calls out the other ones, but it's there. Every single Roman soldier was given a spear. And Paul addresses that idea in verse 18 when he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. If a soldier was skilled... They would extend their spear out ahead of them or they would launch it like a javelin at their enemy while he was still a ways off. You see that? My friend, prayer is the spear. What was the the point of this guy carrying a spear? The point of the spear, no pun intended, was to neutralize the enemy before he could get close enough to cause damage. Most Christians, unfortunately, do not have a prayer life, and it's one of the saddest realities that I've ever found to be true. Why is it so important that you be a praying person? Why is it so important that your life be defined by your prayers? It's because your prayer is what causes the enemy to be neutralized before he gets close enough to do damage. Prayer absolutely pins him to the wall before he can get close enough to you. If you want to keep the devil out of your family, if you want to keep him out of your job, if you want to keep him from influencing and manipulating situations in your life, you got to learn to pray. you got to develop a prayer life. you got to start praying for those kids. Start praying for your marriage. Start praying for your church. Start praying over your job. Start praying over these things and neutralize the enemy before he has a chance to get close. Amen. 
And then if he does happen to slip through, cut him up with the word when he gets there. Glory to God. This is how you and I wage war against the enemy. This is how we live a victorious life. Amen. It's not hard. It's not rocket science. It's actually pretty clearly spelled out for us. You want to protect your marriage, your family, your life? Take seriously the armor. Put on the whole armor of God. Learn to pray. Learn to use the word. Learn to meet the devil with faith. Remember that it's truth that's holding everything together in your life. The person of Jesus is central to you and I. That breastplate that he gave you, it's guarding all your vital organs. Trust in the Lord. He's looking out for you. When you get into a rocky situation, remember that the shoes you're wearing, the purpose for him is to keep you stable no matter how intense the fight gets. You are victorious in Jesus' name. Amen. We are victorious. Glory to God. Let's stand up to our feet today as we close. I hope that you were able to get something out of that. I hope it blessed you. Like I said, there's about six hours worth of good teaching in that passage, and I did my best to try to cram it into about 45 minutes. So I thank you for bearing with me. I truly believe that these, understanding these principles and meditating in them will help you and I to live a victorious life. I want to encourage you that as, as we go from this place today, that you spend the rest of your week in this chapter right? Don't let it just be something nice that we talked about today, right? Take time. Meditate on this stuff. Make this your quiet time this week. Stay in Ephesians 6. This is what I've been doing, man. Stay in Ephesians 6. You'll, you'll be amazed at what comes out of it. Amen? We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.